Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 280 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start this show with a quote from actress Lily Collins. Asking for help is never a sign of weakness. It's one of the bravest things you can do and it can save your life. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello and Happy New Year to you. How you doing? Hope you've rested and recharged and you're ready to go for 2024. I think this is going to be a good year. 2023, mm, there was some stuff happened, I don't know. But this year I've got a good feeling about it. And I'm absolutely buzzing uh, for what's coming up. I've got some projects lined up that are going to push me outside my comfort zone. And that's the place where growth happens. I love to be on the edge of the comfort zone because I feel like I'm, you know, doing something. It makes you feel alive when you're doing something that uh, gets those butterflies in your stomach and stuff like that. And I've also got something coming up that might be exciting for you and might push you outside of your comfort zone a little bit. And it will be particularly useful if you are a non-fiction author ready to rock 2024, ready to turn your book into a talk to become a transformational speaker, showing your audience new possibilities for themselves and inspiring and motivating them into action. Because in just over a week, I'm going to be running an intensive workshop called Turn Your Book into a Profitable Talk in Just Six Steps. And it's kind of, that is Ron Seal. We've got a company in the UK called Ron Seal, does what it says on the tin. And that should, that's pretty much what it's going to be doing. At the end of that session, you're going to get three things. First of all, you're going to walk away with an outline for your talk. Second, you're going to know how to pull the right levers to get people into action without anyone feeling pitched to. And third, you're going to discover how to overcome the obstacles that stop you from fully leveraging your passion, your personality and your power when you speak. So that's what's going to be coming up. It's a live, full-on, roll-up-your-sleeves-and-get-to-work session. It's going to be no replays. Um, and if you would like to join me for this intensive workshop, then you can reserve your spot over at saraharcher.co.uk slash t y b for turn your book hyphen workshop that's t y b hyphen workshop and i'll put the link uh, to join us for that intensive in the show notes too right then let's talk about today's show so let's face it right trying to navigate how to protect the ip you've created in talks books and courses can make you feel a little bit like Frodo trying to get the ring safely to Mordor. You'll get that if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Confused, scared and worried about people stealing your precious stuff. 
And the truth is that the legal profession hasn't really moved as fast as today's entrepreneurs have needed it to. And that has left a lot of us using hope as a strategy when it comes to looking after our business and our assets. But I've got you. Well, actually, more to the point, Heather Pierce Campbell has got you. She is a dedicated attorney and legal coach for world-changing entrepreneurs, as well as the founder of Pierce Law, uh, PLLC. She's also the creator of the legal website Warrior, an online business that provides legal education and support to information entrepreneurs who sort of coaches, consultants, online educators, speakers and authors around the US and also across the world. And she's got some huge names as clients, including Lewis Howes, he of the School of Greatness, Ryder Carroll from the Bullet Journal, Carl Cease, read his book, The Illusion of Money, um, NYT best-selling author and comedian, to name but a few. And on top of all of that, Heather is also the host of Guts, Grit and Great Business podcast, which I've just been a guest on, and she's also a speaker and a busy mum. And today she's joining me here on The Speaking Club to give you some clarity and confidence when it comes to setting the right legal foundations for your business and planning for success. Well, that's enough from me. Let's get over and start that interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Heather Pierce Campbell. Thank you, Sarah. So good to see you again. Absolutely. Likewise. And uh, you're looking well after your Thanksgiving break, which we don't have in the UK. Uh, right. I, was just, I was just talking to some, uh, some other Americans about Boxing Day, which we do have. Oh, and that's right after Christmas, right? It is. It is. It's where mm. the rich people boxed up their leftovers and gave them to the servants on the next day. So anyway, <laughs> enough of that. Oh, my gosh. Well, the funny thing about that is it was actually one of my favorite things as a kid. My mom did Boxing Day, but we did it from the standpoint of like baking a bunch of goodies mm -hmm. and taking it around and visiting friends people in the community. And so that was super fun as kids because it was like the day we got to see everybody, you know, Christmas was kind of a family ordeal. And then we got to go deliver all these baked goods. So I like that's, that. That's our version of Boxing Day. And we had a lot of fun doing that. I think I prefer yours. I prefer yours. <laughs> you know, we have some quirky ways because you just been on a big tour of the UK. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's some strange customs that we have, but oh anyway. <laughs> my gosh, which I loved by the way, it was so fabulous to be there. Cool. Right. Well, let's get into, uh, the interview. So one of the things that I was curious about when I read your story and read your background was whether your life would have been different today if your dad had offered to pay for you to go to college. And I wondered if we could start there and see where it takes us. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think it probably would be. Um, I mean, a couple things come to mind. One is partly about my dad's story and what a challenge it was for him as a kid growing up, putting a bunch of time and work into his family. Uh, really, his dad was a rancher, but they they had a farm, they did ranching. And his dad had told him, if you do all of this stuff for years, uh, you know, it, and it, they all did, by the way, they all put lots of work into the family business. Um, I'll pay your way to college. And then 
time came and he couldn't. And so for my dad, he really experienced the flip side of that, of being promised, you know, the ability to pay his way through school. And then time came. And so he had to figure out how to pay his own way. And he ended up joining the railroad and working on the railroad for a summer. And then, you know, I mean, all kinds of crazy things like his first year of college, he was like hunting and shooting squirrels and eating. I mean, that's because he he could afford housing, couldn't really afford like a big budget for food. So his story is really almost like a generation ahead of his. And so for us, I think he really felt that fear of like, I don't want to promise this to my kids and not be able to deliver. Um, but what it meant for us is that from a young age, we all knew if we were going to school and there were six of us, right, that we needed to oh, figure wow. that out. Yeah. And pay our way. And so um, it was kind of an education that we all got. And I think what it meant, at least from my experience, I can't speak about my siblings experiences and their perspectives, but from my experience, what it meant is I really appreciated being in school. I knew the work that it had taken to get there. I knew what it took to get myself through law school. And I think it just gave me a sense of ownership about that journey that I that I wouldn't have had if my way was being paid. I just think you experience it differently. Mm, absolutely. And that whole sort of effort to get yourself there really started you on that it's sort of on that feeling the same pain as entrepreneurs feel that whole experience you know tell me a bit about that as well yeah well and for better or worse I was kind of a serious kid and so this conversation started when I was five kindergarten and my dad saying you're going off to school and you know there's a couple ways that you can get your schooling paid for if you want to go to college and that's to get good grades or to be a phenomenal athlete and get scholarshiped as an athlete um, or to make a lot of money and just be able to flat out pay for it. Right. So it was like, I, you know, there was a part of me that tried to do all three. Right. So I ended up like really getting into volleyball and I explored and I got offered some volleyball scholarships at some schools, but they just weren't the right fit for me. Um, I pursued academics pretty hardcore. You know, I was a straight A student all the way through school and valedictorian. And I just really had that drive to like provide for myself. And it's really interesting. I talked to other kids who, you know, this was the nineties. Like I didn't get on the internet and search for scholarships or what schools to go to. Like you were looking in books and you were, I was going down to the administration office every week of my senior year, asking them like, where's the list of scholarships that kids can apply for? Cause they kind of had a running, you know, a running list of these things. And so it was a not a little bit of extra effort. It was a lot of extra effort to, to figure that out, to manage that path on my own, to put in submissions for every scholarship I could find. Wow. And, you know, and then piecing that together to make my way through school. And it, you know, like I said, there's just a level of ownership when you have to do that amount of work for yourself, including young, right? Most kids yeah. were not doing that. Absolutely. Wow. And then, so you got this sort of drive, this ambition, because you wanted to achieve that and get into school. Mm -hmm. And then you did your law degree. 
And I don't know where things were heading at that point, but then your mum got ill. And if I feel from reading your story that that sent you down a different path. Could you share more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, like so many kids, I started law school and I I went into law school right out of university. And so I didn't take like a gap year or go get experience in the world. But I knew that that legal was my next step once I kind of sorted that out at the end of my time at Utah State University. Um, but a couple months into law school, she was diagnosed. And what it meant is that my shift really went from school to real life, right? Mm-hmm. And so law school ended up taking a back seat. And it was interesting, even my stress levels around law school, around exams, around, you know, performance metrics, like it real life and real stress was happening over here and law mm-hmm. school was very much happening over here right and so it what it allowed me to do was experience law school in a way that where i just couldn't allow it to be stressful i didn't have the capacity for more stress my mom was dying and i spent that entire first year trying to get as much time with her mm-hmm. and my family every week and i really you know split my time i would uh do law school basically. And I, that's in Seattle, Washington, where I still am now Monday through Wednesday. And then I would travel home. I'd drive home across the state, which is about a four and a half hour drive, uh, without traffic or weather, um, and be there for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then return on Sunday. And so that was my schedule for the year. And I didn't open a book when I was home for the weekends, you know, the second half of the week, I, I really divided up those parts of my life because I knew this is it. This is, this is Mm -hmm. it for the time that I have with mom and with my family. And so what it meant is that I really had to compartmentalize law school and do it in a way where the grade I got was the grade I got. And I still pulled decent grades. I was an A and B student but I I did it in like half the time that is normally allotted for that law school experience. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was just a very different, different experience than most people have. And let's be clear, there were plenty of other people that went through losses and divorces and things like that, that mm-hmm. I'm sure also changed their perspective on life. But, you know, the typical experience is like you dive into law school and that's all you do for three yeah. years. And just was very different for me. And so what it meant about my perspective coming out of law school is that I'd had all this real life experience that made me realize like, you're not guaranteed time. You don't have the time to, you know, to wait around to do what you really want. And I think that's what gets sold to a lot of people right out of school is like, you got to work for the man or work your way up and get all of this other experience before you can really do what you want. And I, it just, for me, it was like, nope, I like, I'm not willing to do that. I don't have the time or I don't know if I have the time, but I don't have the willingness to put Mm -hmm. in all this time doing something that my heart's not really in just Mm -hmm. to see, does it work out? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there you are, you finished law school. Mm -hmm. How did you decide what to do and where to focus at that point? So at that point, there were a couple things that had happened. I took an issues and solo practice class my third year of law school that was kind of like the door opening to like, oh, 
there's all these, these areas that you get funneled into in the law school experience. And usually it's like very traditional, like big law, maybe smaller, medium-sized law firm. Otherwise it's governmental work, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically it. And so it's, it felt very limiting and very narrowing. And when I went through uh, numerous rounds of interviews and stuff, because there's all of these, you have what's called fall, like fall interviews and, um, and all these employers show up and they interview a wide range of candidates. And so going through that process and being on the inside of firms and workplaces where I could see and feel the energy, so much of it was a disconnect for me because it was like people behind closed doors, not interacting with each other or having like really that positive, it just, you know, really felt like work. And to me, I was just like, "Mm -mm, this is not my path. This is not where I fit. And I could see very clearly that that traditional path was not going to be a good fit for me. And so what it meant is that I leaned really hard into like, what could I do? And, um, and nine 11 had just happened by the way. And so it was a really also odd time in the marketplace from the standpoint of, um, even firms that had offered positions to people taking those back and saying, Hey, we're just going to pay you a few thousand dollars to go away. We actually can't hire at this time. So nine 11 really caused some displacement in the marketplace. And then, um, you know, just a really, a, a massive moratorium on hiring for most places. So it was like the worst time in 30 years to be graduating law school. And, what I knew, the the very simple thing I knew, because I had no inroads in the legal field. I didn't know people in the legal field. I didn't know people in Seattle, aside from my law school experience. And I just thought, you know, work is going to come from people. And so I had a very non-traditional way of building my practice, which was I literally created an Excel spreadsheet and I made it my goal every day to get face-to-face with somebody in the legal world to make real genuine connection. And, and so much of it was, you know, just me taking 30 minutes or an hour to research them, research their area of practice, you know, reach out and ask them to coffee or to lunch to discuss their work and what they're up to. And, and so it, you know, it was literally just building relationships and connections and within a few months, and this was even before I got the results of my, my, uh, exams, like the, the, um, state bar exam. Mm. I I just knew like work is going to come from people, even at a down economy work is going to come from other people. And so I didn't sit back and do some of the traditional ways of trying to get work. I literally phoned people up and got on email and said, Hey, you know, my name is Heather. I'm a recent graduate, really interested in your practice area. I'd love to know more about your work. And, you know, it, it was the, um, kind of the, uh, how to win friends and influence people approach yeah. to building yeah. relationships, you know? And what I found is that, which is fascinating because the legal field, I think, gets such a bad rap from the standpoint of reputations and, you know, it's there's, and there's multiple challenges that lead to that. But my experience of all of these established folks in the legal world is that they were generous. They were more than willing to meet with me. They were very willing to mentor in small ways and large ways. They most often would buy my coffee or buy my lunch, like insist on it, right? Even though I was the one that had asked them. 
And it just like, it, it made me realize the power of cultivating those connections and creating your own community. Even, even if you're not automatically plugged into one, like a large law firm, you would be, you have that built in networking, right? So yeah. it was just a different way of building my practice and it, and it worked for me. It was fabulous. Fantastic. So you were, so you were reaching out to these established legal people and then how did you shift into working for entrepreneurs? I mean, I know you work for a range of people, but there seems to be a focus on that. Totally. So there was a common thread in that through those connections that I made, I would get invited to be like a contract attorney on certain projects or cases, which allowed me some really good experience, learning litigation, being mentored by various, you know, very experienced practitioners in the legal field. Um, But I also took on a variety of my own work and my own cases alongside those. And so it was this interesting combination of, of being part of teams, but also doing my own thing. And Mm -hmm. Um, it was a good combination for me. And one of the common threads was that I was regularly doing work for small businesses and particularly in my own work and my own cases. And after a time, because I, I did litigation and, you know, and, and primarily in real estate, uh, business, land use, there was quite a bit of land use as well, but those worlds all overlap. And um, after about 10 years, I thought, you know, I was always non-traditional to begin with, but there was just a point where I was like, there is a way to do this differently. Like I need to create a way to do this differently because I could see the inefficiencies in the legal field. I could see the gaps where people just weren't able to get the support that they needed. And particularly for individual legal consumers in the marketplace and small businesses. Those are massive consumers or potential consumers of legal services that just don't get served well. And so I set about to create a model. It's essentially an alternative legal service provider model that was my became my second business. And so that was the start of the legal website warrior. And I built that up alongside my own practice, basically as two alternative pathways for serving the same clients. And at that point, I really got focused on the small business world. I love that. Sort of similar to what you did to your college. You're like, I'm going to do <laughs> a n- number of things and, and build and build it up. That's that's mm-hmm. brilliant. And I, I love one of the things in terms of hearing you say I didn't really fit in. One of the mm-hmm. things that I liked on your website was all of the things that you believe and sort of really mm-hmm. putting your stake in the ground to 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 attract those people to you. Now, the interesting thing about uh, the entrepreneurs and small businesses, I would imagine that there was a level of education that you needed to do in order for them to understand that they had a problem that you could solve. Was was that the case and was that challenging? Yeah. So um, the answer is yes. And it continues to be a challenge, right? <laughs> it's It's why I spend so much time on the education side, speaking, you know, being part of online summits, um, creating content that's consumable for free online. So there's various ways that I've done that, but all of it originates from the fact that one of the biggest problems I see in the traditional legal world is what I call the black box legal model, where there's a very high barrier to entry and people just can't get like some essential information that they need. 
essentially, I call it the the legal roadmap to their business. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I've built a variety of things. Like I have a free masterclass on my website. I've got a legal basics boot camp that is a series of mini videos, like five minute videos over the course of five days, you know, that talks about this framework that I've developed to help educate my clients about their legal needs. And so I'm a big believer that in the legal world, we should be doing that. We should be educating people first so that we create a more empowered client to show up and actually consume the services that they need. And not just from the position of, you know, sales and, you know, although that's certainly a part of every business from the position of, for me, my entire mission is to create more empowered small businesses that are able to achieve the impact that they want to create through their work. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, so, so on the one hand, you've got this education thing, which you're, which you're working on. And then on the other hand, you know, I was looking through some of your uh, testimonials, which were, which were brilliant, but what kept coming up as well was that the entrepreneurs, and I guess, you know, this is something that I've experienced, they feel scared and they feel mm. intimidated about the legal side of the business. And I guess there's twofold there. One in terms of, I don't actually know, what I'm you know what I'm supposed to be doing or what to ask or anything like that mm -hmm. but also I would imagine there's a big fear about how much is this gonna cost you know everyone knows that an hour of a lawyer's time you know it's a it's a it's a lot so um so there's that thing to overcome mm -hmm. as well and why do you think it is that so many entrepreneurs do feel that way about the law and their own sort of relationship with the law in terms of their business um, a couple of reasons. I think one is that, first of all, they are dealing with a very traditional, slow moving industry. Just going to say it. We have not done a great job to date taking care of small businesses, which is so ironic because 99%, oh. 99.999, like it's a, the vast majority of businesses are small businesses. Mm -hmm. In the United States, small businesses account for, you know, 42 to 43% of the GDP. So even though you hear about big businesses, and certainly they have a tremendous impact in the marketplace, the vast majority of employers um, of new positions created in the marketplace in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years are in small businesses. So it's, I just find it so ironic that the legal world is really built for big business consumers when we have this massive marketplace made up of small businesses that need support. And so there's a real genuine issue in the in the legal marketplace. And I do feel like it's beginning to change. I would say that I've been on the leading edge of coming up with creating ways. Like I, for years, I've intersected with attorneys who just don't understand my business model or where I fit. And it seems very risky to them or like too far outside their comfort zone. But I would say over the last couple of years, particularly post COVID, I think attorneys have realized they've had to get more creative about their messaging, their marketing, how they show up to serve people, how they, how they take care of small business clients. And so I do think it is changing, but People have a legitimate reason for feeling concern about, about, you know, 
gaining access to legal supports. And I think you're very right that they are afraid of opening Pandora's box because, <laughs> yeah. because there's such a disconnect in what they know from a legal perspective, because like, how would you know the legal stuff unless you somehow, unless you'd either already hired an attorney or had some access to legal education, it's just not a thing that's done very well. And so rightfully, most people are afraid of looking in that box because they just think, oh, it's going to be massive or it's going to be so expensive or whatever. And I would invite people to think about legal support in the same way that you think about bolstering and building on your financial skills over time, right? When, when most people start a business, most people have not mastered the financial side of their lives or their business. It's a skill set that you learn along the way. And how many businesses have had to like implement a certain, you know, accounting system or bookkeeping system or hire financial support through a bookkeeper or a similar service and then have had to switch? Like it just didn't work out or it was not what they needed or they switched CPAs because they needed more strategic advice than they were actually getting. Our needs evolve. Our, mm -hmm. our level of supports in business evolve. Same is true in the, in the legal side of your business. And just like every other area that you've had to dip into and learn a bit about, whether it's financial systems, whether it's sales, marketing related to your business, information technology, how many of us have had to become in some small way tech experts for our business, right? So what I love about entrepreneurs, we have so much gumption and are willing to put so much elbow grease into learning what it takes to run our business well. And legal is just one more of those buckets, but it is a system that when it's done right, it underlies and supports all your other business systems. So from the standpoint of business leadership, if you really care about leading and building your business in the right way, at some point you look in that box and you begin to tackle those needs. Absolutely. And it's, and it's, I guess the other thing is that, you know, to a degree we can make this into a monster when actually from what I can gather from the testimonials that I've read it, it is that you, you turn that monster into some sort of cuddly furry pet <laughs> thing that they actually quite like, but I, I guess, you know, there are some legal risks and mm. what are the ones, the biggest legal risks that online entrepreneurs face? Totally. There's, there is a variety. I would say if we were going to like pinpoint uh, a list of top three, clearly IP protection is up there, right? One of the things that all of my clients do is put out a ton of information on the internet, through their websites, yeah. through various platforms, through the way, just like I do on the education side, many of these clients are expert-based businesses as well. And they're putting out a ton of their expertise, advice, tips, information, right? In order to, again, help nurture that marketplace. And so, you know, right away I go to like, okay, where are you publishing content? What is this content? How do we get this protected? How do we get your um, your sales systems 
protected in a way that you're protecting this income. You've got terms in place for what you're selling. You've got proper refund policies, right? So a lot of it is around documentation, but often mm -hmm. it's also IP registrations as well. If they have a brand name that they are building or even a signature course, signature offering, those are protectable by trademark as well. So, so often people are kind of running around bare online. They haven't looked at these things or, or thought of themselves as a candidate for this type of support. And it can make a dramatic difference for a business to get those things uh, protected in the right way. And I guess, you know, in terms of what happens if you don't have those things protected, mm. there must be a lot of exposure. There is, and it shows up in a variety of ways. What I often, what what will frequently bring people to my door is um, they've launched a new course or program or maybe even their business. And somebody, you know, because the thing is, as expert-based businesses, many of us have expertise that we've built over many years. This is not usually like an overnight experience, right? And so by the time you've done that, you have eyeballs on your work, on your message, on what you're doing. And so people are often surprised like, oh, I launched this course and somebody who went through my content has copied it has duplicated, has turned around and named their own business or course after it, you know? And so it's often surprising, especially in the context of like, this was a paid client. But the reality is, first of all, not everybody has ethics and a lot of people are ignorant even now about taking things that they find on the internet. And you would think, I mean, every day I laugh, like uh, it's a little bit of like, I I have this naivety sometimes of thinking like people are going to wake up one day and realize that this is bad behavior. Mm. They don't. There's always people that are willing to do that. And so I basically tell people it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when mm. people are going to take your content, copy your ideas, you know, and if you plan to be good at business, you have to plan for that. You have to plan for people that are getting exposed to your stuff, actually taking it and using it in ways that they're not permitted to do. And so this is why a few simple protections go a really long way to creating those clear business boundaries that help you maintain value in your own business and your position in the marketplace. Yeah. And I think, you know, that sort of, that fear can keep you playing small in some senses that, you know, and and also affect the way that you interact with people and connect with people because there's always this concern or doubt you know or you know there's multiple ways that this can infiltrate and sabotage you without you even knowing when you can get peace of mind and security more simply than perhaps you think you're going to so um that's that's really interesting speakers let's talk about speakers i mean we're mm -hmm. talking about ip yep you know, I am a speaker, I go out, I share my stuff beyond the IP, which I guess is an obvious one. Is there anything else that speakers need to be mindful of? Yeah, for speakers, usually what I see, and, and let's be clear that most speakers have other elements to their business, yeah. right? That are exactly the type that we're talking about here. So whether it's people taking your content or showing up and asking for refunds or saying you didn't deliver, right? And I saw a lot of that during COVID, 
people basically getting financially strapped and then coming back to the business and saying, well, I just want my money back, knowing that they could just file a complaint with a credit card company and usually get that money back within six months if somebody didn't have proper terms in place, right? Mm -hmm. So it's both about IP, protecting the sale, et cetera. So most speakers that I work with also are coaching or consulting or publishing information online. But when you're talking about the speaking component, what what often happens in the speaking world is speakers are participating on, let's call it third-party platforms or somebody else's platform to deliver their message. And terms are not always clear about what happens, what happens to the recording, what happens to the content, who owns what, does the speaker get a copy right? Does the speaker get a control what happens? Does the the presentation get to be repackaged and sold and money made off of that recording by that third party, right? So there's all of these other kind of follow-on issues that if you're not, if you don't have clarity about the scenario can really cause some problems from the standpoint, again, of IP of messaging of somebody else having, you know, some temporary control over your brand and over who sees that message. So it's just why as a speaker, I really encourage people to be very clear about what their boundaries are, what they're okay with and having those dialogues up front Mm -hmm. before they just go signing on the dotted line without really reviewing the terms or not signing anything. And there's plenty of times where people, you know, speakers sign up for stuff and there basically is no contract. There are no terms about what's going to happen and it it can be very problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I just, even recently, one of my clients was booked to do some talks and she just looked in the, in the fine print and the, and basically the IP was hers and they were going to repurpose it and, and, you know, roll it and she caught it in time, Mm -hmm. but that actually is, is, is absolutely happening at the moment. That that's really, um, really useful to know. Okay. Here's a question that a lot of people might uh, ponder on. I know I certainly do. What's the difference between a registered trademark IP and copyright? Because we see little TMs, little Mm -hmm. R's, what what's the difference? What should we be concerning ourselves with? Oh, it's a great question. And it's really a very important question for small businesses and for specifically the types of businesses that I support and that you work with as well that are information-based businesses, right? The, mm. the majority of their services, their messaging, et cetera, is really based around delivering transformative information. So IP, you can think of IP, which is a, an acronym, right, for intellectual property as the bucket. Think of it as the overarching category. So there are a variety of ways that we create IP in our businesses, right? Everything from our proprietary taglines, business names, signature course or program or product names, Um, it's all of the intellectual assets that you create in your business, right? So that's one category. There's also all of the content, what I call the body of your work, 
that you create as well. And really, if you think about your, here's my analogy that's because I'm a very visual person and this helps people to distinguish between these categories. Think about your brand or your business as a mountain. Think about the parts that are visible from the marketplace. We're talking about the snow-capped peaks, mm. right? The top of that mountain. And this is going to be some of what I've just mentioned. Your business or brand name, right? A tagline. I mean, think of Nike, right? The, the name Nike, the tagline, just do it. The logo. These are all very top level brand assets. That's the top of the mountain. What's visible from the marketplace. Those things are protectable via trademark registrations right? Trademarks protect a word, a short phrase, or a logo, like a design, because you can get either a word mark or a design mark registered, right? Mm -hmm. So for folks that are uh, creating signature programs, courses, products, those things are all protectable alongside your business or your brand name, a tagline, a logo. That's top of the mountain stuff. Now you've got the rest of the mountain. You've got the body of the mountain. This is the body of your work. This is your video tutorials, your blogs, your articles, your course content. It's the ways that you express your frameworks, your systems, your ideas. This is what is protectable with copyright registrations. Right. Right. And so a lot of people um, hear about copyright. They and copyright is different, obviously, around the world in different countries. Some countries you have to register it, some you don't. Um, here in the US, you have copyright the moment a work takes tangible form. You've got copyright in the work, and copyright rests with the individual. But if you want to truthfully protect it from being taken from being utilized by somebody else in the marketplace, that is where getting a registration allows you to actually pursue damages, allows you the recovery of attorney and legal fees. And without that can be cost prohibitive to go after somebody and actually pursue uh, copyright infringement. So, so that's where taking that next step of actually getting a registration is really critical not for everything. Let's be clear mm. that most of us create a ton of information in our business. <laughs> People are like, what? I need copyrights <laughs> for everything? No. This is where I say, you know, look at your core assets. And, and most people listening, if they're in an expert-based business, they're a speaker, an author, a consultant, you know, they know what that is. They know mm. the message that they deliver time and time again to their clients. And the question becomes, how do you best express that idea? Because remember, copyright doesn't protect the idea itself, protects your unique expression of the idea. So you want to ask yourself, okay, in identifying my core assets, what are the ways that I'm expressing this idea? And what is the best expression of that idea? For some people, could be in a video tutorial, right? Could be their course content if they're creating videos. For other people, maybe they're really eloquent writers and they've created a workbook or an actual book or a series of worksheets or, you know, whatever. They've they've written content that are the expression of their ideas, their frameworks, et cetera. You want to take those core assets and get registrations around those because you're likely delivering those concepts in a variety of ways, right? But you don't have to protect yeah. everything. Just the crown jewels, basically. The crown jewels. 
<laughs> That's right. And then there are within the IP bucket, there are also going to be things that are called trade secrets. And trade secrets are things that are kept secret inside the business. So think about like Mrs. Field's cookies, like nobody probably forgets. Right. right. Chicken recipe. Yeah, yeah. Totally. All of that. Right. Those are trade secrets where they are, they are something unique about the business offerings, or it could even be systems or processes, like a way that you deliver something. And the way you, you protect trade secrets is through contracts, non-disclosure agreements, having proper employment agreements that keep um, employees from sharing that information. Right. Or, independent contractors. Many of the folks that I work with are working with independent contractors who come yeah. in and for a time see the insides of their business, whether that's client lists, you know, systems, processes, whatever. There's a variety of things that probably should remain a trade secret. And people just don't think about that as one of the core components to their IP. So the, you know, the third thing within trademarks, copyrights, and, you know, the IP bucket is trade secrets and having your core documentation, your core contracts in place is how you best protect those. That was a brilliant explanation. Thank you. I think I've, I've got that now, but Excellent. yeah, it just, yeah, no, it's really, it's really good. <laughs> Excellent. So is there like, either, uh, it might be the way you've already expressed it, I don't know, but is mm. there a simple framework or process that entrepreneurs can follow to get the right support in their business? Yes, absolutely. And it is the same framework, by the way, if you are a business that's just starting out, you're just getting started on your business building path. Maybe you're a few years in, maybe you're making several hundred thousand dollars wherever you are. And for some of my clients, maybe you're making several million dollars a year. Like you're much more established. It's the same. It's the same framework. I walk my beginning clients at, through the same thing that I walk my advanced clients through. And so, um, and there's a couple of ways to get it. One, can I share a resource on my website? Is that all right? Absolutely. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Perfect. So earlier I mentioned the Legal Basics Bootcamp. That's a free little mini series, uh, you know, video series. Super easy. Sends out like an email a day for five or six days, gets you to go click and watch a little video. That's it. That will walk you through the framework. And I've had people, by the way, go through that numerous times because just like other things in your business, you build a piece of it and then you're ready for the next step on the map, right? And and things change and your work evolves. And so you might need to hear it again to really absorb that concept. So that's one way that people can get access and have their basically begin to create their own legal map for their business. We've already talked today about a couple of the buckets because that framework is basically my five bucket framework for business legal success. And, you know, the, the very quick walkthrough so people kind of know what the map looks like is we start with business entity, right? And this is the part that separates your business liability from personal assets. Regardless of what country you're in, um, there is some entity that will protect your business and keep both your assets and your liability separate from your personal life. And this is really important for a variety of reasons, but in the United States, over 60% of small businesses 
don't even have a legal entity set up to contain and protect their business. Wow. It's massive. Yeah. And it's a major problem because what that means is all of this liability bleeds over into your personal life, your home, your bank accounts, your spouse's assets can be on the line if something goes wrong in your business or you get a judgment against you. So, um, so that's the first place business entity, legal entity is where I start. The second bucket we've talked a little bit about, which is business contracts. Contracts protect the daily work, the, the mechanisms of delivering your services. So think about like a core client service agreement, right? They protect what I call every exchange of value in your business. So you bring in an independent contractor, that's an exchange of value. You should have a contract around that. Maybe you start a collaboration with somebody else who's very aligned and you're going to co-create a course together. You need a contract around that, right? Maybe you're hiring your first employee. Again, you should have a variety of contracts around that. So think of every exchange of value that you have in your business. Even having an online website is an exchange of value. People show up and consume information. I remind people free does not mean free of liability. You need your terms and conditions. You need your privacy policies up. You need terms for anything that is being sold online. It's an exchange of value. So number two, the bucket, uh, the, the contracts bucket, I spend a lot of time in with my clients. Third bucket is business insurance. Not an insurance person, but it's really worth looking in there. There's a variety of ways. And I go through uh, in my Legal Basics Bootcamp, variety of policies that you might look at for your business and ways you can bundle those. But Insurance goes a long way to offering certain kinds of protections to your business for very specific risks, right? It doesn't protect you against everything, but protects against very certain kind of certain kinds of risks. Fourth bucket, we've talked a little bit about, I gave you the mountain analogy, it's your IP protection plan, right? The earlier in your journey, you can be thinking about your business from the standpoint of IP, you will just build a better business. Absolutely. Final bucket. I joke that everybody's running towards this bucket. I call it your dispute resolution strategy. You can also call it your communication strategy bucket, uh -huh. right? We have so many opportunities for things to go wrong in business. Like if you've ever played that game of telephone, people have opportunities all the time to misunderstand things, to have expectations that are not the same, whether it's with a client, a business partner, a collaborator, a contractor, right? So having a communication strategy that helps to decrease risk for your business is massive. It's money back in your pocket. It will save you. I can't even tell you how much heartache it can save you. Like the number of times I've had clients show up and be like, I have been dealing with this frustrating client for six months and I'm done. I'm over it. I just need your help, you know, kicking them out or telling them to go away or whatever. Right. And I'm like, where's the client services agreement? Where are the terms that they, you know, you can end up being stuck really dealing with some unreasonable people in your business if you don't have proper supports in place. And what does this do? slows down your business growth. You're spending all this energy dealing with people problems that you could have contained and put supports in place for that will really streamline your way out of that. So that's a big one. It's kind of an overarching bucket that I talk about in the various ways that 
we build our business policies, we communicate about our services and programs and our marketing. Like you think of all the communications you have with the marketplace and with your client, it's a series of touch points. Mm. That language needs to be consistent. The experience needs to be consistent in order to minimize those potential disputes. And that's all under, um, you know, what underlies all of that is your legal supports in your business, reinforcing that language, reinforcing that experience. So it's a very quick overview of those five buckets, but that those are the things that I walk every client through. That's brilliant. I love that. And I, I can I can just see, you know, that it feels like you're walking into the world all sort of armored up in a, in a way that but that doesn't sort of push you away. And that last piece is also sort of feels like it's touching on brand um, as well, you know, and, and values and all of that stuff. And I think having that clarity because goodwill works until it's gone like it it can evaporate quite quickly can't it Mm -hmm. so that's brilliant oh heather thank you for so much for sharing all of that stuff that's that's been gold in there that's brilliant and we'll put a link in the in the show notes to the website and to that resource so people can go and and have a look at that now um I will ask you to share more about that in a little bit but before I do I have some standard questions to ask you First one is, this is the speaking club. I know Mm -hmm. that you do speaking. Mm -hmm. What's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Oh, gosh, so much. I mean, I will say that speaking and learning to speak is transformational, not only for your business, but I would say in relation to how you communicate your message, Mm -hmm. right? Being able to do it concisely, clearly it's there's so many lessons that you learn from speaking right and and speaking in a variety of ways speaking on stage can be quite different than speaking to a zoom room right and Mm -hmm. getting that interaction and that engagement and so it's um I personally love speaking. I kind of have to contain my energy around it because I enjoy it so much. (laughs) It's gotten me clients. It's gotten me all kinds of exposure. It's gotten me goodwill with other people who are providing the platform. You know, I've had friends that um, run three-day events say, hey, will you just show up and take care of people over the lunch hour and just do a live Q&A? And I love it. One of my favorite testimonials came from a guy who sat through one of my live Q and A's over a lunch hour. And he was like, I cannot believe this. I just, I would have paid a thousand dollars for the information that I just received over just a live Q and A. So it's, you know, there's so many opportunities within the speaking world. It's for the businesses that probably both you and I support. It's really essential. Absolutely. Um, And I guess the question that I want to ask next is, have you had a speaking gig that you're like, oh my goodness, that was, that was terrible. I just want to forget that and never, (laughs) ever think about it again. Has that happened to you? Oh, totally. The very start of my career, I was presenting a series of CLEs, continuing legal education seminars on the topic of legal ethics. And I had, I had a variety, like a typical CLE crowd crowd. I actually presented to um, a group of corporate lawyers at the top of the Columbia uh, tower. There's like a club at the top of the tower here in Seattle. That's kind of a sweet spot. 
And then I presented to a group of prosecutors. And that was just like the flattest. I don't know even what, like it just went so terribly. It was one of those scenarios where I'm like, I just want off of this stage. I want to be done with this presentation and never think about it again. But you got back on the horse afterwards. That's, totally. that's the most <laughs> Well, you know, we live and learn. We get, we get feedback. We get recordings of ourselves. We get to figure out, you know, and I think speaking is really about like, how do I just do it, you know, a couple degrees better next time? It's not about solving all the problems. It's about like, how do I focus on doing this one thing better? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Right. Next question. What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, goodness. I would say there are a couple books, two books that come to mind. And I started reading them in my 20s. I lost my mom, which we've yeah. talked about. Um, and my therapist gave me these books. And a few years later, I ended up losing my baby sister in a uh, car accident. And, you know, I've been through divorce. I've been through numerous miscarriages. Like I've walked with a lot of grief and loss in my life. And so these books have become like Bibles to me. And you know, I think part of the human experience, part of the entrepreneurial experience is going through the valleys. And I think mm. it can be really hard to be in those valleys. And I think it's also really essential to our journeys. And so uh, there are two books by James Hollis. One is called The Middle Passage, which is all about finding meaning in midlife. And the other one is called Swamplands of the Soul. Um, and they are two very small compact books but so just so deeply beautiful and transformational they really have become like a bible oh that's brilliant oh th thank you for sharing that they've never come up before and I've not heard of them mm -hmm. so I'll definitely mm -hmm. go and check them out and I mean definitely it sounds like you know we're all going to go through this experience at some point so if, you know if there's something that can help that's that's amazing thank you for sharing that um okay What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why, apart from sort out your legal stuff? <laughs> mm, yes, this is a great question. So early on in the building of my second business, I hired a business coach and he, you know, and I think there can just be so much to focus on when you're building a business. And this was before I even had a website up. Like I had the concept. I did not have the business. Right. And he just said, do you know who you can help? And I was like, yes. He's like, can you spot them in the marketplace? Yes. He's like, just go straight to the top. Who can you help? And I was like, okay. And again, going back to my early days of building, you know, my legal career, like I'm not afraid of people. And so I just made a list. I mean, I put people on this list that are like, some of my favorite people in the entrepreneurial marketplace that I, you know, in some ways I had no business reaching out to is what I was thinking, but I was like, well, my business coach told me to do it. And even, even some that I didn't reach out to, but that I ended up intersecting with in a couple months <laughs> of putting them on my list. And suddenly I had clients that are like name brand clients in the marketplace before I even had a website up. It, I just reached out to him and like, Hey, I can tell you need legal support for your business. And here's how I can tell. And this is what I do. I think I can help you. 
timing was right. And so, yeah, I was signing up clients before I ever had a website that is now the legal website warrior website. And, you know, I just, I loved that advice so much because I think it's really easy for us to let a lot of things get in the way of doing business. And I think a lot of people tell themselves like, oh, I need this, or I need this, or I need a fancy website, or I need, you know, no, you need to know very clearly who you can serve, how you can serve them, call them up, drop an email. You literally need nothing else and you can be doing great business. Absolutely. That's so valuable. And so, and so many people are afraid to pick up the phone or afraid to, to do that. It's, it sounds like mm-hmm. I, I once heard of uh, I, I, this, this list of uh, called the dream 100, which is put your dream 100 people up there and then go for them. And, you know, and I, it sounds like you did a similar process, but it, you know, we put so many fake barriers up and the whole imposter syndrome, but it's just, yeah, put it to one side and go for it. Cause you don't know what will happen. It sounds like it worked no, for you. That's fabulous. You don't know. And it reminds me what you just said about the Dream 100. There's two women here that I intersected with years ago, but their entire business model is teaching people about making that list and spending an hour every morning reaching out in some way, whether it's phone call, emails, connecting with those Power 100, Dream 100, whatever you want to call them, best connections possible for your business from a whether it's a potential client or a referral yeah. standpoint, right? And business really is, for the most part, in my perspective, about relationship building. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really important point there. Thank you. Right. Final question before I wrap this up. Um, if you could have one mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, Wow. That's a big question. Mm. One mentor. Goodness, I consume so much from so many. I this is hard to narrow down. I don't know. A few a few but these are very historical, you know, characters. Joan of Arc, Cleopatra, Lincoln. It is they're folks really who stand for their own values like take a stand in the world based on your values. And um, those to me are the most inspiring types. I think it's so easy for people to, and we we see it even in business growth strategies to throw away their values or follow a course of action that a business coach told them, even though it's not aligned. Mm. And so I think, you know, when I look at life as a whole and people who I admire and love most, it's folks who are really clear on their values and take a stand for those values. Absolutely. That congruence, that is such an important thing. Otherwise you get that conflict and dissonance and everything else that Mm. scuppers you. Brilliant. Listen, you've been an absolutely fabulous guest, Heather. I really think what you've shared is, is going to be so valuable for people and, and not just the legal stuff. There's a whole load of gold around that, that people will get if you listen to this episode. So the first thing I want to ask you is where can people go? to get more of you, get more of your stuff. I know you've got a podcast as well. If you could share about that, that would be brilliant as well. Yes. So you can find me at legalwebsitewarrior.com, just how it sounds, and loads of resources on there. If you go to, um, I mean, I have a resources tab. I also have a media page. 
The media page is phenomenal because it's conversations hosted by other entrepreneurs in the marketplace, just like this. And different things come out in every conversation. But if you enjoy learning through podcasts, which I assume you do because you're listening now, go check those out. There are some just really amazing conversations there that will help you think about your business in the, in the right way and actually make learning a bit about this legal side so much easier. You want it to become almost second nature that this becomes one of the things that you handle. So there's that. There's also my podcast, which you'll find linked on the website as well. Please do come visit. Sarah's going to be on tomorrow <laughs> and then that episode will publish, but it is called Guts, Grit, and Great Business. It is not a podcast about legal stuff. It is a podcast about building businesses that you love and that support your life. You know, it's, it really is about building both a life and a business that we love. So some phenomenal guests on there that talk about a really wide range of things in the, in the world of business building and entrepreneurship, and truthfully in the world of personal growth, spirituality. I mean, I've got a guest that talks about grief, like big topics that all influence our business building journeys. That's brilliant. And of course, I think you're all over social media. People can connect with you on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Yes. We'll put all the links in the show note for people to go and check those out. Now, is there anything else that you want to say, Heather, to call this interview complete? Anything else you think you need to add? Mm, you know, it's mostly that I would love for people to reconnect with the joy, the joyful side of business building, like connect with that big why of why you started on this path to begin with. I think it can be really easy to get disconnected from that. And entrepreneurs, we make up less than 10% of the population. I'll be interested to see this number post pandemic, whether it's possibly changed. Yeah, it's going to be, but it, it is right. It'll be higher, but it still is a massive minority. And so from the standpoint of having a tremendous amount of heart and courage, which is one of the huge reasons that I love entrepreneurs, like staying connected to that deep why of like, why did you choose this path and, you know, stay in the joy of it, I think just really helps us build the kind of businesses that we like to spend time in. That's a great note to leave things on. All that's left for me to say is thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and everything that you shared today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been lovely to be here. I got to say I'm a little bit of a fangirl about Heather now. She's so impressive. She's clearly an expert, yet she makes everything sound so simple, which for me, as you know, if you're a regular listener, is the benchmark for a real expert. And she's worked with some huge names, yet she's grounded and as authentic as they come. I certainly got loads out of this interview and I'll be taking a look in my business at where I can better protect and set solid foundations uh, for the future for me and everything that I create. Um, do go and check out Heather's various websites. They're all in the show notes for you and take a look at the resources she has for you. Having invested so much into your stuff, it makes sense to look after it all. Also, hook up with Heather on LinkedIn and Instagram and let her know if you found something especially useful. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Okay, before we wrap up, don't forget 
to check out the intensive workshop coming up if you are struggling to turn your book into a profitable talk or it's something you want to do this year. The link is in the show notes. Smash in! Thanks again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. I would so appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or wherever you're listening. And I will catch you next time. But until then, you know it's coming up. Don't forget to go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. It's a nightmare. You're an expert with so much to say. But now that you've been booked to speak, you're struggling to know exactly what to talk about. You want a talk that engages the audience and wins you new clients without you losing your personality or anyone feeling pitched to. But what happens when you sit down to create that talk is that you end up staring at a blank page for ages or worse, surrounded by hundreds of sticky notes with content that you could include. With so much material, you just don't know where to start or finish. Don't worry, because many experts like you face exactly the same challenge. And that's why I created the Blank Page to Stage Guide. In just 50 minutes, this breakthrough resource is going to help you identify the big idea of your message, make it relatable for the audience that you're speaking to, and convey it all in a way that gets the audience inspired and on board with your idea. And it works even if you have tons of material or your subject feels less than exciting. If you want to cut through swathes of content and get a talk that you're excited to share, your audience loves and wins you new clients, then grab your blank page to stage guide from saraharcher.co.uk slash new guide hyphen TSC. Oh, I forgot to say, it's completely free. Enjoy. Enjoy.